0: The reading for the day comes from Matthew twenty one through 16. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After he agreed with the workers to pay them a denarian, he sent them into his vineyard. Then he went out around nine in the morning and saw others standing around the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And they went. Around noon and then at three in the afternoon, he did the same thing. Around five in the afternoon, he went and found others standing around. And he said to them, "'Why are you just standing around here doing nothing all day, long?' "'Because nobody has hired us,' they replied. He responded, "'You also go into the vineyard.' When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, "'Call the workers and give them their wages, "'beginning with the last ones hired and moving on finally to the first. When those who were hired at five in the afternoon came, each one received a denarian. Now, when those hired at first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarian. When they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. These who were hired last worked one hour and they received the same pay as we did, even though we had to work the whole day in the hot sun. But he replied to one of them, friend, I did you no know wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarian? Take what belongs to you and go. I want to give to this one who was hired last the same as I give to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you resentful because I'm generous? So those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. The second reading comes from Luke twelve twenty-two to 32 Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. There is more to life than food and more to the body than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither plant nor harvest. They have no silo or barn, yet God feeds them. You are worth so much more than birds. Who among you by worrying can add a single moment to your life? If you can't do such a small thing, why worry about the rest? Notice how the lilies grow. They don't wear themselves out with work, and they don't spin cloth. But I say to you that even Solomon, in all his splendor, wasn't dressed like one of these. If God dresses grass in the field so beautifully, even though it's alive today and tomorrow it's thrown into the furnace, how much more will God do for you You people of weak faith, don't chase after what you will eat and what you will drink. Stop worrying. All the nations of the world long for these things. Your father knows that you need them. Instead, desire his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights in giving you the kingdom.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And I just got to say, what a year this week has been. What a year this year has been. What a long few years we've had together. I want to encourage everyone to just breathe. And I mean that literally right now. Anyone else notice that their breath has gotten a little shallow lately? Anybody else see dishes stacking up on a counter in a way that seems to visually capture our collective overwhelm? Or perhaps your home is suspiciously, sparklingly clean from anxiety washing. The election that culminated this week was over 500 days long. We've all been on a journey and now that we have limped across the finish line together, when it was finally called, across the country there was a variety of strong reactions. Videos of people shouting and celebrating in the streets, as well as people defiantly standing in front of capitals and courts denying the truth of the results. Our country is all over the place. Anybody else feeling all over the place? I'm hearing people having a variety of reactions about this election, even in our own community. In my circles, I've gotten texts with a flurry of different emojis. There's the uh, dancing lady. There's the celebration kind of party poppers. There's some praise hands, but I've also heard from others who are feeling numb or empty inside, performing external reactions that seem like the right thing, but still just a little glazed over. I'm hearing some people who are feeling torn, like there was no good option in this election, so they're just glad to be able to move on. One person said, thank God it's over. I'm weeping. Some folks I know are really adamant that it isn't over, nothing is over, just because an election has been decided doesn't mean our work has changed in any meaningful way. And that is true, but Casey, a member of a group thread that a number of Zao folks were on, put it this way, it feels like we've been on fire. And now we're not on fire, so that feels good. But we are sopping wet and covered in ash and third degree burns. So like, better? If that version of better resonates and it doesn't feel like good enough, I totally hear you. And we have work to do, we do. Those folks who are insisting that the election doesn't change anything about the work that we do, they're not wrong, we said it here last week that no matter who is in charge of this country, our call is the same, our call is to the streets. But that doesn't mean that we pretend that this election didn't happen or that we aren't feeling major feels about it. So we're gonna start today by doing what we strive to do here at Zao, we're gonna try to be fully alive. What does it mean for you to be fully alive here in this moment, in your body right now? For me, I know that I tend to hold back during the thick of things, during a struggle, during a battle, during a hard time. My energy's on survival. Sometimes there's not room for all the feelings. But once the battle, not the war, But once the battle is over, when you have a moment to breathe, can you let your body speak truth to you? As we often do, I want you to attend to the way your body is in the world right now. Get your feet on the ground and feel the earth beneath you. If you're sitting down, feel your back against Whatever seat is holding you up, pull your shoulder blades back and open your chest. Open to the God who is with you, to the truth that your body contains. Breathe deep the Holy Spirit that animates you, that gives you life. What do you feel? Is there grief you didn't have room for? a week ago? Is there fear that you haven't yet had space to process? Is there rage that still needs to push its way out of your system? What about relief? What about joy or pride that you have made it through to right now? What about laughter at the absurdity of our lives, of our country, of this moment? Let's be fully alive to all of that. I wanna hear from you in comments. Perhaps you're already going and I haven't been able to look yet. But what have you been holding on to that you didn't have space to feel until the tension finally broke? How can you honor all those big feels? As a side note, if you are still feeling numb, that's okay too. Just ask yourself if there's anything your body is holding back. Anything that feels unbearable. Anything that you're still unsure if it's safe to fully feel yet. And as we are in this exercise of aliveness, which can be freeing and liberating and terrifying and painful, I want to invite you into prayer. God of all creation, God of the cosmos, God of eternity, God of right now. God, we pray that you would be with us in our body and every fiber of our being, that you would awaken us to what is true God, we pray that you would comfort us and be near us. God, we pray that you would laugh and celebrate with us. God, we pray that you would help us to feel relief in our bodies, help us to release any fear, help us to release the grief we need to express, the disappointments, the shame. God, what is in us that needs to be named? We offer it to you. God, we need hide nothing from you because you see us top to bottom, head to toe, inside and out, and you love every single piece. God, we pray that you would look on us as individuals and as a collective body, that you would continue to claim us as your own, and that you would hold us in love as we face ourselves and one another in this moment. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Fam, we still have two parables today. We'll be brief, but they are powerful. We'll begin with the laborers in the field. The kingdom is like an owner of a field who goes out into the marketplace and hires workers to work in the field, agreeing to pay them a fair day's wage. Then, a few hours later, the owner is back in the marketplace and sees people standing around. He says, why don't you come work in my field? I'll pay you a fair day's wage. And again at noon, and again a few hours later, including an hour before the field work is done, He sees people and says, why are you still here? They say, no one has hired us yet. He says, I'll hire you. Great, come on. I'll pay you a fair day's wage. And they labor all together in the field, those who arrived first thing in the morning and those who arrived just before close. And they labor together. And at the end of the day, they are brought in to be paid the most recent arrivals first. And they are paid A fair day's labor worth. They are paid the same. And as every person goes by, back to those who started in the morning, each person gets enough for a day's work. Those who were there at dawn are furious. Why did they earn just as much as we did? We worked harder for it. And the owner says, you mad, bro? You mad that I'm generous? Did I not give you what you agreed to? Did I not give you enough to live on? Did I not give you what you needed? This is how it is in the kingdom. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now, this parable is beautiful and powerful and troubling. It's a direct read similar to the one that we had with the prodigal son but it's told in a different way. And if the prodigal son is a story that you're more familiar with or perhaps you've always pictured yourself as the son returning home after making mistakes, maybe this parable hits a little differently if it's easier to imagine being one of the laborers who came at dawn. This story tends to kind of raise our hackles around fairness. And fairness is something that we hold deeply important in our individualistic culture. It's something we learn very early on as children. One of the things that I find most fascinating about early childhood development is that there are some proponents of teaching math earlier than reading who say that very small children are capable of division because if you give them a bunch of objects and you tell them to make it fair, They can divide by two or three or five or however many people are splitting something because they know so deeply, so early, what fair looks like that they know how to divide something equally. But many important conversations in our culture have pointed to the fact that equal does not actually give us what everyone needs. That perhaps equality is not really what we're going for that when things have been made askew, when some are at a disadvantage, when some are put at a disadvantage over and over and over again, equality doesn't look so great anymore. But everything in our culture is built towards making us good laborers, good workers. We are raised, not only by our families, but by our schools, by our cultures, to be productive members of society. Honestly, that's one of my least favorite phrases in the entire English language. And I think it sounds totally foreign to God, who prefers words like beloved, child, friend, family. But we've been taught what's fair and what's earned. How many of us learned early on that if we got an A, we might get those sneakers we wanted? Or if we ate our broccoli, we'd earn a slice of cake. We were cultured to be workers, earning our keep and protecting our view of fairness. Not only everyone getting the same, but based on how much work they put in. These laborers in the field, they were day laborers just like Jesus. And they had to earn their right to eat each and every day. Those who got hired last didn't do anything wrong or different than those who got hired first. They just didn't have the luck to get a job that day. And so the culture around them, the culture around us says, you didn't work today, you don't get to eat. And the laborers, even though they've all been in that same position before, seem to have really bought into it. Why do they get to eat? They didn't get here till the end of the day. Jesus says, does it have any bearing on whether you got to eat? It reminds me, actually, of a really recent debate in our culture, still ongoing, arguably, about a living wage. How many times have we heard the argument from advantaged people? I didn't go, you know, bust in my butt to get a graduate degree so that someone flipping burgers at McDonald's could earn $15 an hour. You can hear Jesus kind of saying, it's not about you, man. All people deserve to be able to live. That's the purpose of a living wage. But this sort of sets off our childish alarms where we say, not fair, not fair. And that's something that's been ingrained in us from a really early age. But Jesus is not concerned about fairness. He's just not, at least not at first. Jesus is concerned about enough. Not did you earn it, not is it fair, but does everyone have enough? Jesus goes even farther. It doesn't matter if you worked all day. It doesn't matter if you worked an hour. I would wager that Jesus would say it doesn't matter if you worked at all. What matters is that you have enough. What matters is that there is enough for all. Because in God's economy, earning and deserving have nothing to do with whether you have enough. Jesus seems to give shockingly little care and attention to what you've earned or what you deserve or don't deserve. He just wants to make sure you have enough of what you need. First, before anything, before anything else, is everyone getting enough. And this is the clearest picture I see in scripture of what we like to call the great reversal. This is that saying that Jesus has not only at the end of this uh, parable, but over and over again, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I often talk about how in our hierarchical minds, that means the first and the last, and then it's just going to switch. Flap upside down in this hierarchy but this is the most clear example we have of jesus turning the hierarchy sideways and making sure that everyone has what they need the last to arrive didn't get more money than the first they got what they needed and so did the ones who labored since dawn they got what they needed This is the concern of the kingdom of God is that all are provided for, all are cared for. And it's not about earning it. And that should humble us really quickly in our culture that tells us that what we earn gives us our worth. Jesus doesn't even note it. Jesus doesn't even consider it. What you are worth is who you are. What you get is what you need. And in the kingdom of God, What you earn doesn't exist. What you labor for is a privilege and a joy. All are to be provided for. This is a really, really hard thing for us to understand in our faux meritocracy. We have this lie of an American dream that if you work hard enough, you can earn not just enough but more than enough you can earn your way to the top because we all know that there isn't enough for everyone. So we'd better get what's ours. It's not even true here, but we really, really like to pretend it could be. And we work ourselves to the bone and we labor and we labor and we try. But at the end of the day, what determines whether we have enough are forces out of our control, systems of oppression and hierarchy and evil that have determined our worth. Not so in the kingdom of God. So how do we live into the kingdom of God? Well, we are living in a very different earthly kingdom, earthly empire. Well, we trust that there is some inbreaking, that the rules of the kingdom do hold true here, even if it's difficult to see it. In our next story, one of my absolute favorites We have the ravens and the wildflowers. You may know this story from Matthew, where it's about lilies and the birds of the air. But I love the Luke version because it explicitly talks about ravens. And it reminds us that lilies, though beautiful and precious here, are wildflowers in Jesus' context. Why are ravens so important? Well, when Jesus is explaining that God provides for the ravens and God provides for the wildflowers and they don't work and they don't farm, one of the important things to note here is that ravens specifically, they're not just birds, they're unclean birds. These birds aren't even Jewish. And yet God is pouring luxury on them. And this in a culture that says, you've got to be in the in crowd. You've got to be the right people. You've got to earn it or you've got to be born into it or whatever it is. And Jesus says, do you look at those dirty birds over there? God cares for them. Do you think God's going to forget about you? God loves you. God knows who you are. And God wants to provide for you. It is God's great pleasure to give you what you need, Jesus says as he tells this story. If God can provide and love on those dirty birds, how much more so you, who God has claimed as her own children, her own kin. And they don't labor, and they don't toil, and they don't spin. They just exist and contribute in that beautiful gift economy that we talked about last week. They don't earn, they give generously and they receive the gifts of others. This doesn't mean that Jesus is anti-working, it's just that working and laboring and toiling has nothing to do with whether and how you are provided for. That the gifts of creation are for you, Not to be stolen or extracted, but to be received with joy and gratitude and reciprocity. This story comes right after another Jesus tells about a man who stores up his grain in bins, who labors and labors and accumulates and accumulates and out of scarcity hoards. And he says, someday, when I have all of this stored up, then I will feast. Then I will truly live. And the next day he dies, says Jesus. What now? What now, says Jesus? Are your grains coming with you? No. This is kind of a a mixture of saying, like, hoarding doesn't do you any good. And you can't take it with you. And you've missed the point. This is not living in abundance. This is living in fear and terror and scarcity. This is hoping to live in abundance later by letting your fear and scarcity guide you now. I gotta say, this one is a hard one for me. And I don't do it with money, I'm not a penny pincher, but man, do I have a a really rich personal theology of hard work paying off later. I will labor and labor and say, oh, my hard work will mean that I can rest later. But that rest, it never comes. And by, I am 33 years old, I know it's a lie now. And it's a lie I keep telling myself. I call it front-loading the labor. I'll just work hard in the beginning and then it'll make it so much easier down the road. But that's a lie that I tell myself, those are grains I am storing up in bins because I am too afraid to rest, to smell those wildflowers, to watch those ravens, and to live fully with my kin. This is reflective of how unbalanced my life and labor are, that I feel like maybe someday I can earn my rest if I just work hard enough. That is the logic of the world. That is the logic of the empire. That is the logic of sin and death. The logic of creation, the logic of Jesus, says, live, live now, live fully, live open It is better to be open than to be closed. It is better to see the abundance that is here before you, to see the gifts of creation, to receive them with joy and offer your whole self back, than to try and hoard and labor and extract for fear that if you stop now, you can never get up again. Jesus tells us two incredibly important things in the story of the ravens and the wildflowers. One is aim higher, and the other is worry less. Now, those are really difficult lessons to internalize, and they seem to contradict each other. Jesus, if I'm just trying to survive, if I'm just trying to get by, first of all, how are you going to tell me to aim higher than that when it seems like surviving is the only thing that I can manage? And second of all, how are you trying to tell me not to worry about even more than surviving when I can't even survive? But Jesus is clear. Aim higher. Worry less. There is enough for all of you. There is enough for you in particular. And you know what? I will take care of you. Guess what isn't taking care of you? Your worries. Guess what isn't taking care of you? The things, the thoughts that keep you up at night. And I just personally, me, Jonah, want to acknowledge that this doesn't feel real a lot of the time. That there are moments when there so observably isn't enough that it's really difficult to take this passage with full depth and weight and, and recognize its truth. And yet Jesus is clear in telling us to shift our focus here. Jesus the clever one, Jesus the good provider, Jesus the trickster, Jesus, the one who pays all day laborers the same, whose concern, first and foremost, is do you have enough? If not, I will find a way. I will make a way. Our Jesus is a God who makes a way where there is no way, who makes enough out of not enough. Our God is a generous parent, asking us for trust. In chapter 11 of Luke, Jesus says, Which parent among you would give a snake to your child if the child asked for a fish? If a child asked for an egg, which parent would give the child a scorpion? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Jesus is reminding us that we do have a good, good God, a good, good parent watching over us. And that when we ask for those things that we need, because that child isn't asking for, um, you know, anything out of the ordinary. That child isn't asking for something that will harm another child. That child isn't asking for something beyond that which God wants for us, life, flourishing, nourishment joy and when that child goes to a parent saying I'm hungry what parent would offer harm to that child instead of nourishment God says I know you even better than you know your own children I parent you even better than you parent yourselves I know to give you what you need And it is my good pleasure to do so. How much more if I provide through all of creation? How much more am I lavishing on you? And your worries keep you from seeing it. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about how you're going to survive. It is the nations that worry about these things. No, aim higher. I want more for you than survival. I've got survival down. I've checked that box. I've got that for you. Don't waste your energy on that. I want you to aim higher. I want you to aim for the kingdom. I want you to aim for more. Don't just survive this election. Think of what could be. Build the community you want. Build the kingdom here on earth. Pray about how to thrive. And don't let your worries eat you away in the meantime. I will give you enough to get by. Actually, actually, I will give you enough to thrive. You don't have to get by anymore. Put your eyes on that, on thriving, not just surviving. What have the basics of stress and worry and fear ever done for your ability even to survive? Has it ever paid your bills? If it can't even do that, then your worry certainly can't love you, can't show you beauty, can't bring justice to your community, can't give you a good night's rest to prepare for tomorrow. These are the ways of the world, scarcity. But the way of the kingdom is abundance and trust. Last week, we talked about that gift economy. The abundance in creation that overflows, that offers itself and doubles back to greet itself again. The way of creation is gift-giving. Let the earth provide for you the way the earth provides for those lilies and those dirty birds. Rachel Botsman, who is an expert on trust and technology, defines trust as having a confident relationship to the unknown. It's the bridge between the known and the unknown, she says, over a river of uncertainty. This is what Jesus is asking for in us. Not that we ignore the threats, not that we pretend things are different than they are, but that in the face of uncertainty, in the face of the unknown, we move forward with a confidence in our God who has promised good things to us and good things to all creation. We are called to understand our wealth, our abundance, and it's not in grains stored up in silos, and it's not in your bank account, and it's not in your Twitter following, and it's not in your labor, and it's not in the purity of your politics or your attempts at perfection. Your wealth is in the love of the universe. Your wealth is in your inmost being given to you by the God who loves you. Your wealth is in Jesus who makes a way when there is no way. Your wealth is the birds and the flowers and the rest and the laughter of all creation and the whole cosmos. Your wealth is knowing that you earn nothing that you are called to simply be your wealth is in having a confident relationship to the unknown in your God who made you, who loves you, who wants more than surviving for you, but calls you to be fully alive. God is always on your side. And that is more than enough. Will you pray with me? God, sometimes it doesn't feel like enough. May we look at the uncertainty with confidence in your provision. May we face the unknown with pride in your love for us. May we look in the wildflowers of the field and the birds of the air and see our reason for trusting you God, may we aim higher than just making it one more day. May we offer our worries to you so that you can turn it into hope. And may we never waste our energy by worry. God, you promise that there is enough and that that is what matters first and foremost for all. May we have the heart to believe you. Amen.